Hello again, church family. It is Pastor Jake once again coming to you from the office here at the church parsonage. Thankful so much for the slow turn of the weather, as I think this week uh, it is now in the mid-70s, whereas last week it was snowing. I am thankful for this slow weather change. feels long overdue. I can't wait to be able to get a chance to actually see you again in person as we are discussing God's Word. While this time has been unique, uh, it just does not replace being able to be in each other's presence in the Lord's house. So let's open up in prayer and hop into the sermon today. Uh, Father, I do thank you uh, just for continuing to watch over us uh, day after day, uh, even when life is not going the way we expect it to. You continue to pull through, you continue to show up, and you continue to watch over absolutely everything. So Lord, I thank you that nothing escapes you and that you continually have our best in mind. And Father, I ask that you continue to use this reading of your word to encourage, inspire, and strengthen those who hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this year, we are working our way through the Bible. We're covering a big picture view from one end to the other. We are looking at the major events and pivotal points in biblical history as we work our way through. We last left off with God of all creation showing up and methodically destroying one of the most powerful and influential nations in history. God used Moses and his brother Aaron to deliver his message and his signs and wonders. They're referred to today as plagues. Those upended and destroyed not only the false worship system of Egypt, but their financial and economic power as well. Being the greatest teacher of all time, he also used these same events to change the circumstances of his chosen people and rebuild their faith in him. This week, we're going to look at the fulfillment of a promise that he had made to Abraham 430 years earlier, as he finally calls his chosen people out of the land of Egypt. There is a uniqueness to God being infinite. His timetable looks a bit different than ours. When I make a promise to someone, say my wife for example, I typically have a short timetable to make good on that promise. Most of my promises are only a week or two out, and part of this comes from my ability to remember them, and part of it from my ability to plan ahead. Scarcely do I make commitments more than a month or two out, and even more rarely on any commitments over a year out. But our God works differently than we do. His timetable is on a completely different scale. His patience seems endless to us, and his ability to plan ahead incalculable to our standards. Time and again, he tells his people that he has a plan and that it is a good one, that they just need to have patience while it comes to be. When God first called Abram out among his people, he made several promises to him. Part of those promises was giving land to his descendants. In Genesis 12:7, he stated, to your descendants, I will give this land. This is the land that Abram was looking at during this conversation. This was years before he would have a son and some 430 years before God would break his descendants out of the bondage of Egypt and lead them back, back to a land that they've only heard stories of, a land that they have never laid eyes upon. We're going to pick up the story right after the Passover. This is the time where God had had the Israelites act in faith by placing a blood of a sacrificed lamb on their doorposts to avoid the penalty of death of all the firstborn. It must have been a horrendous sound to hear the wailing of the people in the middle of the night. Genesis 12:29 tells us that at midnight the Lord struck all of the firstborn, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh 
to the firstborn of the men in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. The Bible says that this cry came from everywhere because there wasn't a house where someone wasn't dead. Thus begins the great exodus. In light of the previous events, this is what the Bible tells us. So pick it up with me in Genesis chapter 12, verse 33 through 36. That's Genesis chapter 12. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptian people seemed to finally get the message that God wanted his people to leave. The Egyptians were desperate to get rid of the people who were bringing all of these unimaginable troubles upon them. So fast as they could, at the request of the Israelites, they gave them all the valuables that they could get their hands on. Suddenly, after losing everything, gold had lost its glimmer. Silver and jewels became just burdens, and they were worthless in the sight of some of the Egyptians when compared to life itself. It seems that from their actions that they may have finally started seeing where life's true worth came from. A nation that was once the economic capital of the world around. A nation known for its infrastructure, its beauty, its wealth, and sheer power within a month's time had turned a complete 180 and willingly allowed themselves to be plundered of all their once held valuables. They say that when it rains it pours, meaning that when things happen they happen hard and they happen fast. Think about it, 430 years of waiting, 430 years of seemingly unanswered prayers, of bondage, of slavery, generations of idly sitting and waiting, completely upended after one month of the miraculous and a last minute exodus of a nation. This exodus, or exit, happened so quickly that the Bible tells us in chapter 12, verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had bought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The people, even though they had what once seemed like all the time in the world to sit around, weren't prepared for God to fulfill his promises. Did you catch that? After watching plague after plague, like crashing waves beating on the beach shore, Listening to Moses' droning message of let my people go, they were still not prepared to leave. Why were the people not prepared? Did they not believe the message? Did they not see the power of God demonstrated again and again? Why had they not prepared any provisions for themselves? Regardless of the answer, it was time to move, and it was happening now. Scholars tend to think, that given that the Bible says that there were about 600,000 men, aside from women and children, that we can actually safely assume around 2 million or more Hebrews total left all at once. As the people were heading out of Egypt back to the promised land, it seems that there may have been an optional route that God had decided not to bring them by. So check out Genesis chapter 13 verses 17 through 18 with me. Genesis chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. 
But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. God's recorded thoughts on the matter are quite interesting to look into. From the text, it would seem that going through the land of the Philistines was an option. It may have been quicker or easier on foot travel. It seems, however, that the faith of the Hebrews was a bit fickle, and that even though they had already seen unimaginable miracles, the thought of going toe-to-toe with the Philistine army was going to be too much to place on them. In fact, it had the possibility of making the nation reconsider leaving Egypt and choosing to go back into slavery. What I find unique about this situation is that either way, they had to face an army. Following God meant coming against an obstacle either way. But God chose to take them on a path that wouldn't destroy their faith, but rather build it up. As the events that happened next are probably the most associated with the Exodus, more than those that came before and certainly more than those that follow. Leaving Egypt and traveling toward their destination unknown, God sends the fledgling nation a really unique symbol to show that he is still with them and that he's still watching over them. Does anybody remember what that was? Check out chapter 13 of Genesis with me. It's verses 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God knew that his people needed a constant reminder of his presence. While we don't know exactly how tall these pillars were, we do know that it was big enough for a full procession of around 2 million Hebrews to see it and be reminded that their God, who was faithful, was still with them. It is at this point that God purposely chooses to lead his people by the Red Sea. While not being red in color, many think it received its name because of a plant that blooms near the water's surface seasonally, and it has a distinct red color, making the surface almost look like there's a bunch of rust floating there. It is here on these shores that God decides that he needs to sever Israel's ties with Egypt forever, in a very memorable way. And these days, when it comes to war, we have the tank. The invention of the tank completely revolutionized warfare. The absolute devastation it could bring, coupled with its extreme mobility and nearly impenetrable fortress-like exterior, has made it one of history's great killing weapons. Having or not having a fleet of tanks at the ready has completely changed the outcome of many battles. Thousands of years before the tank would ever become a dream in a war general's eye was the chariot. The chariot was made of a steel frame and wooden sides and could protect the rider from blindside arrows or javelins. The chariot was the height of power. The Bible shows us that it was still in ruling battlefield power even in King David's day and they were still in use even after Christ died on the cross. The chariot was the ultimate weapon of warfare. It was at the height of power and it was to be feared. So when the Bible says of Pharaoh in Genesis 14, 6 through 7, Genesis 14, so he made ready, talking about Pharaoh, his chariot, and he took his army with him, 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Israelites had a good reason to fear. The way this verse reads, it almost seems like Pharaoh chose his chariot, then he chose his best 600, and then at the last second he decided to go with all of them. Pharaoh decides to make one last stand. Instead of cutting his losses and leading his kingdom forward, he chose 
in direct defiance to the God who had clearly showed him that he was not in charge to once again try and regain control. As Pharaoh mounts his army, God has led his people to a point of confrontation. It is here that they will have to confront their fears and their faith. God has brought them to the side of the sea on purpose, as we have already discussed. It was God who told them to camp there. They did not wander there aimlessly. God even goes so far as to tell Moses that Pharaoh will think that they've wandered there unwittingly. Chapter 14, verses 1-4 through says the following, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back in a camp in front of Pihiratha, there between the Megiddol and the sea, in front of Balaam Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God does not act without purpose. He never has. He never will. Everything he does is with purpose and intention. We may not always see either in the moment. In fact, we might not understand it until we stand before him in glory. But rest assured, both the things that he does and the things that he does not do, he does with purpose. And he does them in a certain sequence on purpose. It is here that God has decided to pull Israel out and to make them something altogether new. As growing fears overcome the fledgling nation over their circumstances, they start lashing out at Moses. So pick up the conversation with me in verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done this to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So let me get this straight. The people have just seen more miraculous events than any other nation would until Jesus walks the earth. They literally have seen the light while their neighbors on the other side of the fence walked in darkness during the ninth plague. They had seen and felt the hand of God. In fact, during their argument with Moses, depending on the time of the day, they would have had to look past either a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, mysteriously reaching up to the heavens to have their argument with him. If you get anything from this situation, it should be that people are fickle and miracles don't guarantee belief. Moses, on the other hand, has faith. He has seen the same miracles, and he has decided to completely trust God at his word and his plan. After their fear has been realized, Moses confronts it by turning them toward faith. In verses 13 and 14, he says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you all you have to do is be silent. So God doesn't act without purpose. He wants to build your faith, not deteriorate it. God knew the road ahead and that these people would have to have full trust and faith in him if they were to reach the promised land. By first getting their attention, by showing them their fear, he starts to use Moses and then next the events to build their trust in him. The stage is set for the final battle of defiance between Egypt and the God of the universe. The people who do not know our God accuse him of being a God of anger or retribution. 
of callous murder of untold innocence. They want to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, calling it a stumbling block to believing in our loving God. But they overlook that he is the God who could have made every Egyptian vanish into dust at any point that he so chose during this entire ordeal. But instead, in his infinite love and enduring mercy, he decided to keep them alive and breathing in an effort to allow them to reconsider their ways. He does the same with sinners today. He gave you life. He filled your lungs and he created the mouth that you used to curse him with and he still waits for you to turn from your selfish ways into his loving arms. But some won't change their ways, no matter how much evidence is given. In recent years, there have been many attempts to minimize the crossing of the sea to a natural phenomenon. No matter which way you cut it, crossing on dry ground and not wading through feet of silt and mud is a complete miracle. No natural phenomenon that moves water in a spectacular way could produce that, especially given the timing since God tells Moses to both raise and lower his staff to command the entire ordeal. So let's read the account of this from the Bible together. We're going to start in verse 21 and we'll finish the chapter. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and it made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters, being a wall to them in their sight, on the right hand and on the left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them, into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on to their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and the Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw a great power of the Lord that he had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In one final act, God uses Moses to build the faith of the Israelites and finally destroy the power that was once Egypt. In this one act, God has physically saved his people from their physical slavery. There was another in history that controlled the wind and the wave. While it seems that they might have gotten the point, we may have missed it. Riding in a boat in the middle of the sea, twelve disciples are tossed to and fro all night long. So fierce was the storm that seasoned fishermen, men of the sea, began to fear that their lives might be lost. Their master had been asleep the entire time, seemingly unaware, seemingly uncaring for their predicament. Finally, one of the men came to him and roused him, asking him why he slept and did nothing, asking him if he really cared about their lives. Without saying a word to his disciple, the master turned to the ocean and told it to calm down. Instantly, everything died, and they murmured among themselves, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? It comes from Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. 
they realize who was in their boat and they bow down and worship him on the spot and saying, truly you are the son of God. The God of wind and waves saves. And the day of the Israelites, he showed up to physically save them from a physical slavery. He appeared on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. And that wasn't just a physical salvation that we needed, but a spiritual salvation from the slavery and bondage of our sin. Jesus said once to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the Son sets you free, and you are free indeed. John chapter 8, verse 34. When we look back on the passing through the Red Sea, we can see it as a symbol of the believer's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would later say, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4. through 4. Paul is giving the exodus from Egypt a Christological reading. He's making the connection between the exodus from Egypt and the salvation in Christ. Notice how Paul says we were all baptized into Moses, just as the Israelites were baptized into Moses. So too are Christians baptized into Christ, as we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might also walk in newness of life. That comes from Romans chapter 6 verse 4. So the parting of the Red Sea not only finalized God's redemption of his people from the slavery in Egypt, but it also prefigured the greater spiritual reality of God's redemption of his people from slavery to sin through the work of Christ. Both the things that he does and the things that he does not do, he does with purpose and he does them in a certain sequence on purpose. He will continually go after your heart. He wants to reconcile the relationship that sin broke apart. He will bring you to a spot in life where you will have to face your fears and decide if you are going to put your faith into Him. He will continually try to build your faith in Him. The question is, if you don't know Him, are you willing to trust Him? Allowing God to come over and work through your life by accepting Jesus Christ as Savior over a sin nature you will never win against on your own will completely change everything, but it takes trust. If you know Him, Are you still willing to trust him? His ways don't always make sense, but he has a plan, and it is a good one. But it takes trust. He will purposely put you in spots that will make you choose between bad and worse, just like he did with the Israelites when he was bringing them out of Egypt. But he will use each and every circumstance to build your faith and affect the people around you, but you first have to trust him. What will you do today? Thank you so much for listening in today. I truly hope that listening to God's word today has strengthened your faith and even encouraged you as you move forward. Thank you so much again for listening, and I can't wait till we see each other again.